Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. Diane and I were giggling just before we started recording uh, because we were talking about this year's upcoming Beyond the Grave event for October, which, yes, it's only, well, it's March 1st today as we're That's recording. That's right, it's March. Wednesday, March 1st. Um, I was going to say it's February, but that ended yesterday. Uh and but it does it takes months to put this particular event together so you can't start too early and we'd actually chosen this year's uh theme mm-hmm. last october after we <laughs> as we were doing uh the legend of sleepy hollow so this year we're excited to announce that we are going to be doing dracula yes i'm so excited um i actually was listening to I haven't done it in a while because I've been working on The Wizard of Oz, but I had been listening to an audio version of Dracula for a while just to refresh myself with the whole, not because it's been a long time since I've read the actual novel, uh, but it's been fun to revisit it and I can't wait to adapt it into our script for this and October. What, and as you were saying at the beginning, because you know some people may look at Dracula and doing this in a cemetery as being Halloweenish. And which is nothing even close to what we do, but these are the classic and you, and you brought this up and it was such a cool connection that these are the novels that the Victorians would have read. Yes. And so it's almost like recreating storytelling from their era, which I think just makes it, I don't want to say so much cooler because that sounds so weird, but yeah, it makes it so much cooler than the ghost the ghost hunts and all this stuff it's just and dracula unless like you said unless you read the novel or read the um watched the bram stoker one back in what the 90s whenever that sometime in the early 90s yeah yeah that it is so different than what we have grown up with with um bella lugosi right that was dracula And all those, I mean, Although I don't got... get me wrong. I love a good Bella Lugosi. Yes. We, yeah. It's... When I originally approached you about the beyond the grave idea back when we did um, the oh. post stories, yes. the idea was we're doing it to help raise funds for these historical cemeteries and their preservation and keep them up. And I wanted to be able to have that connection to the cemeteries. So while obviously none of these authors are buried out here in Colorado, the, their works would have been read by the people buried in these mm-hmm. historical sections. These were the Victorians. They did read this, these works they liked. And Victorians, we know, loved a good creepy story. Um, oh, yes. They were creepy enough on their own, even without their creepy literature. They had some of their own creepy traditions, but they loved having those spine tingling novels as part of their entertainment. They told ghost stories. They did all of that. So it's fun to be able to bring back what they would have been familiar with. Uh, when we do our Beyond the Grave series, it's fun to bring that back to them. And it introduces people to the classic literature, not the the Hollywood version. Because, right. And we were talking before we started. I had never read um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Granted, I grew up with Disney. And, and, <laughs> Which is not bad. You know, <laughs> it's not bad. And then Sleepy Hollow, the series was out. I learned so much about American history from there. That's really sad. But um, And then I read the short story and it's just it was phenomenal and it's just 
And because Je- Jenny is so into classic literature, she I'm able to, she's introducing it more to me. And so we are enjoying it, enjoying introducing it to our audiences who may not be familiar with it. And hopefully the younger people who may not even have had this in school. So that's, I mean, yeah, we love doing it. We love doing stuff for the cemetery, but it's, there's so much that comes out of positive that comes out of this that we're so excited for. It's already March. We're already planning for October. So that goes to say how excited we are about this. (laughs) And fortunately, there's no end to the amount of literature. So every year we'll be able to, I, I do think at some point we plan to repeat some of what we've done. Um, in future years, but we don't want to keep those too close together just because, you know, we want people to come back again and again and see something mm-hmm. different every time they come in. So this year we're excited. We're going to bring Dracula to life, the novel, uh, bring some of the characters to life. We have some really cool ideas. So I'm looking forward to putting it all together. It's going to be so much fun. It is. It's so, gonna be fun. so this week's topic and I think we alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, but this week's topic is fairly grim compared to what we've had for the last three weeks. But it's one that I personally have been wanting to cover since the beginning of our podcast. Today, we will begin discussing the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. And just as a heads up, this will be a two-parter because there's entirely too much information to try and put into one episode without leaving out important details, which I don't want to do because that doesn't do justice to the victims uh, that were part of this whole trial. So we are splitting this up. So this week and next week, we will be covering Salem Witch Trials. Of course, we are a podcast about cemeteries, and it is important to note that with the exception of one individual, none of the victims of the trials are actually buried in any sanctioned cemeteries. And we'll talk about that in next week's episode. We'll get into that. At the time, if you were put to death for the crime of witchcraft, you could not be buried in sanctioned ground. However, Salem and its sister communities have built several memorials to these victims, and we will be discussing them as well. And while the victims are not in the cemeteries, many of their families who survived the ordeal, as well as their accusers and those who passed judgment against them, were buried in their family plots. The Salem Witch Trials were a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts in 1692. The trials began in Salem Village, now Danvers, and quickly spread to other towns in the region. Over the course of several months, more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, and 20 of them were executed, 19 by hanging, and one man was pressed to death. The trials were a result of widespread hysteria and panic that swept through the area, fueled by religious fundamentalism, political tensions, and fears of social change. The accusations were largely based on rumors, gossip, and superstition, and those accused were innocent. The trials were finally brought to an end when the governor of Massachusetts intervened and put a stop to the proceedings. We have talked in past episodes about the Puritans and their beliefs, but we'll do a quick recap as it plays a very important role in the events of 1692. In 1692, the Puritan belief system in New England was characterized by a strict adherence to religious doctrine and a strong emphasis on personal piety and individual responsibility. 
Puritans believed in predestination, the idea that God had already determined who would be saved and who would be damned, and that the fate of each individual was predetermined. This belief created a sense of urgency among Puritans to live a righteous life and to seek salvation through good works and adherence to religious law. Puritans also believed in the importance of the Bible and its literal interpretation, rejecting many of the rituals and practices of the Catholic Church. They placed a strong emphasis on education and literacy, believing that individuals should be able to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. The Puritan belief system was also characterized by a strict moral code, which governed all aspects of life, including dress, behavior, and speech. The community was expected to enforce these standards, and individuals who did not conform could be subject to public shaming or other forms of punishment. The winter of 1692 was an especially harsh one in New England and in Massachusetts particularly. New England winters at that time were known to be harsh and unforgiving. They, I think they're still that way, but with modern conveniences, it's not so bad. Yeah. Especially for women and children. Temperatures often dropped well below zero degrees Fahrenheit. And houses, even those of the most wealthy, would only be warmed a few degrees above the outdoor temperatures, even with fires burning day and night. And part of that was, I learned on my last trip to Salem, their fireplaces are ginormous, like you could walk into them because they did all their cooking Mm -hmm. and heating everything inside of them. But they weren't particularly adept at heating the buildings in which they were in. And that's part of the reason why their rooms are smaller, their ceilings are lower, but it was still not much warmer inside than it was outside. During the winter months, women and children would have to work hard to ensure that their households were prepared for the cold and snow. They would have to chop wood for the fireplace, gather and store food for the winter, and make warm clothing and blankets to keep themselves and their families warm. For many women and children, winter was a time of isolation and confinement, as snow and ice made travel difficult and dangerous. Women would be tasked with caring for children, preparing meals, and maintaining the household, often without much help from their husbands, who might be busy with other duties. In addition, illnesses such as influenza and pneumonia were common during the winter months and could be particularly deadly for children and the elderly. Access to medical care was limited, and many families relied on home remedies and traditional healing practices to treat illnesses. And All this to the strict religious beliefs of the Puritans, winter was probably the bleakest time of year for many New Englanders. The local politics of the time also played a significant role in the events that unfolded in the winter of 1692. Over the course of the next several months, many in New England would be accused of the crime of witchcraft, but the majority of the action would take place in Salem Village and Salem Town. In 1692, Salem Village and Salem Town were two distinct communities in Massachusetts. Salem Village, also known as the Village of Salem, was a rural farming community located approximately five miles northwest of Salem Town, which at that time, five miles was only traveled by foot or by horse, so that was quite a distance. It was a small and relatively isolated community with a population of around 500 people. Salem Village was characterized by a strong religious and social hierarchy with prominent families holding significant power and influence. Despite their differences, Salem Village and Salem Town 
were closely connected both economically and socially. Many residents of Salem Village would travel to Salem Town to buy and sell goods, and there were frequent interactions and intermarriages between the two communities. The events of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692 primarily took place in Salem Village, but they had a profound impact on both Salem Village and Salem Town and helped to shape the history and culture of both communities. From 1680 to 1689, Reverend George Burroughs served as minister to the people of Salem Village. Burroughs was known for his strong personality and his uncompromising views on morality and religion. His tenure as minister of Salem Village was marked by several disputes over his salary and other financial matters. Some members of the congregation accused him of mismanaging church funds and of being too focused on his own financial gain. In 1689, George Burroughs left Salem Village and was replaced by Reverend Samuel Paris, and it is in his household where today's story really begins to unfold. Before moving to Salem Village, Samuel Paris and his family had lived in Barbados, a Caribbean island where he had served as a planter and merchant. During the late 17th century, Barbados was a British colony that was heavily reliant on the sugar industry, and the labor of enslaved Africans. Many plantation owners, like Paris, faced challenges related to crop yields, market fluctuations, and competition from other plantations. There were also concerns about the spread of the disease, particularly yellow fever, which was a common problem in the Caribbean at the time. In addition to these economic and health-related challenges, Paris may have faced personal difficulties as well. There are some indications that he may have been involved in a scandal or controversy while in Barbados, although the specifics of this incident are not known. Ultimately, Paris decided to leave Barbados and seek a new life in New England. He was offered the position of minister in Salem Village, and he accepted the offer, bringing with him his wife, children, and two enslaved individuals to Tuba and John Indian. By 1692, Paris had been reverend of Salem Village for about three years, and tensions were growing between himself and his congregation. Paris's compensation package included an annual salary of 60 pounds, as well as a house and firewood. However, like George Burroughs before him, Paris believed that his salary was insufficient to support his family, and he repeatedly requested additional financial support from the village. In addition to his annual salary, Paris requested that the village provide him with additional compensation for various expenses, such as the cost of his children's education and the purchase of firewood. He also requested that the village pay for the construction of a new parsonage, which he believed was necessary for his family's comfort and well-being. Paris's requests for additional financial support were met with resistance from some members of the village who believed that he was already being compensated fairly. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted.
1692, the Paris household consisted of Reverend Samuel Paris, his wife Elizabeth, and their three children, Thomas, Betty, Susanna, and their niece Abigail, and the two slaves, Tituba and John Indian. In January, Betty followed by Abigail began experiencing strange fits and exhibiting bizarre behavior. They would scream, throw objects, crawl under furniture, and contort their bodies in unusual ways. They complained of being pricked and poked with pins. Dr. William Griggs, the local doctor, was called in to examine the girls. Dr. Griggs was unable to find a medical explanation to their symptoms, and he suggested that their behavior might be a result of supernatural forces, of course, specifically witchcraft. As silly as it may seem to modern standard, witchcraft was highly believable in 1692 and was a diagnosis that was not taken lightly. Belief in witchcraft was widespread, and many people believed that witches could cause harm to others by using magic or making pacts with the devil. Accusations of witchcraft and pacts with the devil offered a way for people to explain the inexplainable and to assign responsibility to the misfortunes that were befalling them. As crazy as it sounds, there was some relief that came with the diagnosis of bewitchment, although this created a new set of fears. If they were bewitched, that meant a witch was in the community, and it was important to find out who was causing the girls to be afflicted. On February 25th, a member of Reverend Paris's congregation named Mary Sibley came up with a plan to help identify the witches who were supposedly afflicting the girls. Sibley suggested that Tituba bake a witch cake. As a side note, a witch cake is made from rye meal and the urine of the afflicted individuals. The cake was then fed to a dog with the belief that if the dog exhibited symptoms of bewitchment, it would reveal the identity of the witches responsible for the afflictions. However, the cake did not work and the dog showed no signs of bewitchment. Reverend Paris and Dr. Griggs continued to question the girls until they finally gave up the names of three women, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba. Interestingly, 1692 was a leap year. And so on February 29th, warrants were issued for the three women and they were placed under arrest. The ultimate question is how exactly were these women tormenting the girls if they were not physically present throughout January and February when the girls were exhibiting symptoms? It was believed that a witch would have the ability to project their spirits or send spectral images of themselves to afflict their victims. A witch could send their specter to cause physical harm to their victim, such as by causing them to experience pain or illness. They could also cause disruptions to a person's daily life, such as by making objects move or disappear. A witch could send their specter to torment their victim with nightmares or disturbing dreams or other mental distress. Oftentimes, those accused of witchcraft were also considered to be the outcast in the community. And that is exactly what Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba were considered to be. Sarah Good was known for being a social outcast in Salem Village. She was poor, uneducated, and had a reputation for being argumentative and confrontational. She had a history of disagreements with her neighbors, and some believed that she had a bad temper and was prone to fits of rage. Sarah Good was a widow in 1692, 
Her husband, William Good, died in 1688, leaving her with several young children to care for. Sarah Good struggled to support her family and was often dependent on the charity of others in the community. And just as a side note, I didn't include this in the script, but there was in Puritan beliefs in societies when you did have somebody, especially if it was a widow or a child who did not have a primary provider for them income wise, the community was supposed to take these people in and make sure they were fed and had clothing and shelter and all of that. That was just part of their Puritan belief system. But Sarah had a problem of making herself so disagreeable on a regular basis and thought she should be given more than what she deserved or whatever the case might be that a lot of people resented having to care for her. She was one of those widows that they really did not want to have to take care of anymore. Unless, because that was, that's the information that was just in the trial, right? So we really don't know Sarah's true backstory. Well, that no, I mean, that's, we do know that she was married, that she had the children and that she did create problems. Yeah. But there might've been other conditions to her that we don't know about. Obviously it's the 1600s. There's a lot we don't know. Right. Sarah Osborne was born in England in 1643 and had migrated to Massachusetts with her first husband, Robert Prince in 1660. After Prince's death, Sarah married Thomas Osborne in 1672. Sarah Osborne was known for her unconventional behavior and for living apart from her husband. She had been involved in a legal dispute with her second husband's family over property rights, which may have contributed to her reputation as a contentious and difficult woman. Are we noticing a pattern yet? That's only two. (laughs) I, I, I am. I'm starting to notice that. Yes. The reason the girls accused Tituba of witchcraft is not entirely clear. Some historians believe that the girls may have been influenced by stories of magic and folklore that Tituba had shared with them, and even by teaching them simple spells, which would have been against their religion and for which they would not have wanted to get in trouble for if it was found out that they had been dabbling in magic. They had spent many long hours that winter at Tituba's side, and as an enslaved person, she was a safe scapegoat goat for their afflictions. On March 1st, 1692, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba were questioned by magistrates John Hawthorne. And yes, that is the relative of Nathaniel Hawthorne that we have spoken about on other podcasts, and Jonathan Corwin regarding the accusations that they were witches. The three women were brought before the court in Salem, Massachusetts. During the questioning, Sarah Good maintained her innocence and refused to confess to being a witch. Sarah Osborne was too ill to stand trial and was sent back to prison. Tituba maintained her innocence at first, but eventually confessed to being a witch and claimed that she had seen other witches in the community. She also claimed that she had been visited by the devil who had promised to give her powers in exchange for her services. Tituba's confession was a significant turning point in the Salem witch trials, as it ultimately set the tone for what was to come in the next five months. And with that, we will leave you folks with a cliffhanger and discuss what happened in next week's episode, because I don't want to give too much away at this point, but we kind of wanted to give you guys the setup of what really led up to these trials in the first place and why they are so significant even even today. 
Exactly. Because I mean, we're not because it mentioned their beliefs in their strict beliefs in the Bible. We are not at all condemning that um, religion at all or um, that people took this opportunity to maybe shun and outcasts in this, you know, excitement. And as you know, we even see that today, something can start and it can turn into just total out of control madness. It did. It is an event that snowballed. I mean, it started with these two young girls who were going crazy. You know, they were having fits. They were ill. They were, you know, doing weird things that were especially not considered things that girls would do at that time. You know, that was when gender roles were very specific. If you were a girl growing into a woman, you were being raised to run a household, get married, have children, all of that. If you were a boy, you were out doing the the manual labor, the building, the crop growing. Um, If you happened to live on the coast, you were probably fishing, doing things like that with the sea. Um, And so for girls, especially the winter was, a really hard time for them. They couldn't go out and visit their neighbors as often because of the conditions and neighbors, especially in Salem Village. Again, it was the rural community. So neighbors weren't as close together. So it wasn't like you could just go next door and hang out with your girlfriend. They were going to be a little bit further up the road. And if the conditions were bad, you were stuck in the house. Um, These girls, um, there was another dot. Like I said, there were, there was another daughter in the household of Susanna and she's not actually mentioned throughout the trials or anything. Betty was the one who was afflicted as well as Abigail, the niece. Um, Susanna is never mentioned as having been afflicted. And I don't think she was one of the girls who was an accuser either. Um, but they did spend a lot of time with Tichuba. Tichuba was the household slave. John Indian, her husband would have been doing the manual labor and stuff for Samuel Paris while Tichuba was in the house doing the cooking and the cleaning and the mending. And she would have been sitting at the fire with these girls telling them about her heritage, her culture, her folklore. Mm-hmm. And um, they would have been, you know, there's speculations that they may have tried some of her little spells. You know, um, there were popular games to play about who you were going to marry and all these little yeah, things exactly. that now we think about as not being dangerous at all, but the way the Puritan belief system worked, mm-hmm. it was extremely dangerous. And um, if they got caught doing that, the girls would have been severely punished. So what did they do instead? They blamed, yeah. They blamed Tichuba. They became crazy because they were being bewitched. And um, there is some speculation and we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. That some of the others that were accused um, and some of the others doing the accusing, it was for self, very personal selfish reason for land grabs, other Mm -hmm. personal belonging grabs. Uh, One of the things about the law at the time is if you were accused of witchcraft and you confessed to it, you could lose all of your property. It would be confiscated from you and then it would be given to other people in the community. And so for some, there's speculation that it was sort of a land grab, you know, the more you do it and you don't want to, you know, for a while, especially in the beginning, they didn't want to say that the girls were just looking for attention or that they were just looking for something to do because they were so bored and stuck inside all winter. So it was very hard for people to separate the idea that these girls would act out because they're bored and have nothing better to do than to say, oh no, they've been acute or they've been tormented by these people in our community that we don't really want in our community. And this is a way we can get rid of them maybe. Well, and then back at that time, anything that like you were saying, they, it didn't follow the norm 
or it was um, they had some affliction that the village doctor or whatever medical person couldn't diagnose or cure automatically, then it was they were possessed. They had something was going on. So it was it always came back to something they couldn't understand. And they would place it as witchcraft or they either were casting spells or had been. Yeah. Yeah. The devil takes a lot of blame in this whole thing because if it wasn't God, it was the devil. And that was the Puritan belief. If it wasn't God, it was the devil. And so, and of course, again, with their whole predestination and trying to be good all Mm -hmm. the time, um, it really created conflict. And then of course, these first three women who were accused, especially Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, because they were outspoken, because they behaved differently, because they were poor, because they irritated a lot of people in town when they were first accused. And that's probably one of the reasons the girls decided to accuse them in the first place. You know, if you got to a point, I mean, I can just picture in my head, it's 1692. I'm a girl, I'm trapped inside. I've now I've pretended to have this affliction for weeks. I mean, this has gone on for nearly a month. And finally, and with the pressure of your father and the pressure of the doctor, you have to give names, right? You have to give somebody up. Who are you going to give up in the community? You're going to give up the people mm-hmm. that aren't in high standing, at least at this point. So they picked three women who did not have high standing in the community, who if they were punished, it wouldn't have felt like as big a deal as if they had accused somebody else who was in better standing with the community. It's almost like the Mean Girls Club. It kind of is. ninety-two version. And that's kind of what it feels like the further we get into it. So next week, we will go more into the trials. We'll talk about who some of the other victims were and their accusers. And then we'll cover um, where some of these folks are buried or suspected to be buried. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, anybody who was actually um, hanged or in Giles Corey's case, pressed to death, Mm -hmm. they were not buried in the cemeteries there in Salem uh, because they would not have been allowed to. Uh, but Salem over the last several decades has taken it upon themselves to make sure they're not forgotten. And there are several memorials uh, throughout the city and, and Danvers itself um, and a couple other places where you can go and visit to pay your respects to these victims. So we'll talk about that next week uh, when we come back. So with that, thank you for joining us today to learn more about the 1692 Salem witch trials. Please visit our website theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com, where you will find the resources we use to research today's episode. And next week's as well. (laughs) And next week's too. And please be sure to visit us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or directly on our website. This helps others who love cemeteries and history to discover us. Until we meet again.